When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Ugly Things Podcast. In this episode, we're going to take a look at the life and music of the Hungarian-born guitar player, Gabor Zabo. The cross-pollination of jazz, pop, rock, and psychedelia in the 60s is a fascinating one, and Gabor was the perfect embodiment of that blending of musical forms. He was one of the first jazz musicians to embrace the new wave of pop and rock, putting his own distinctive spin on songs by the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, Donovan, the Jefferson Airplane, the Doors, and others. He was also an innovator in the use of controlled feedback, using an amplified acoustic guitar to conjure swirling melody lines that added to the hypnotic effect of his music. His music casts a powerful spell. I'm currently working on a book about Gabor in collaboration with another writer, David Holzer. David is from England like me, but he lives in Hungary, so he's perfectly situated to write and research those elements of the story. Whereas I'm in California, where Gabor was based for much of his life and where he created lots of his finest music. We're calling our book Spellbinder. A few months ago, David and I sat down on separate continents to discuss Gabor Zabo and his music. Hope you enjoy our conversation. David, why don't you tell me how did you first get into Gabor's music? What is it about his music that first captivated you? Well, I first... um got into Gabor's music when I moved to Hungary. And I, my brother is an obsessive jazz guy. And he said, well, if you're in Hungary, you should really check out Gabor Zabo. And I did and was uh, mesmerized by it, really. I, I, I couldn't, like all the best music, I, I couldn't really get a handle on what Gabor's music was. I, I started with the the classic run of, of mid-60s albums, I think Jazz Ragger onwards. And I heard something in it that was, uh, as we called the title of our book, that was kind of spellbinding. I knew he obviously was Hungarian. I knew he had played a lot of jazz in America from the late 50s onwards. But that still didn't really explain what the music was. And as I went deeper into Gabor's music, into the 70s and his um, collaborations with Bobby Womack and Bob James and Chick Corea, I still couldn't really understand what it was. So, as I say, with, like with all the best music, there's this kind of otherness to Gabor that's absolutely fascinating and, and apart from falling in love with the music, makes you want to try and understand it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, my experience is, is similar. There's something very intriguing and uh, mysterious about it. it. It really conjures a mood the way he plays, and it's not like any other guitar player I've ever heard or any, any other kind of music. Um, yet it's not trying real, it doesn't seem to be trying real hard to be especially innovative. It just is, like you said, it has an otherness. It's so different from anything else in just a sort of subtle, magical way. And uh, that's why it's, uh, it's so, so insinuating about Gabor's music. You, you find, you, you know, at least I found, I just kept returning to it. And that's really, you know, all I wanted to listen to a lot of the time was, you know, another Gabor album. It just had that effect on me. Yeah. Let's um, maybe we could each talk about, um, you know, what what particular song maybe sort of encapsulates uh, Gabor's magic to you. I mean, what what's one of your favorites? Let's talk about that. The the first one that I really 
registered was Mizrab, first recorded by Gabor on the Jazz Raga album, which was 1967. And that version is under four minutes. And it kind of doesn't feel like it ever really gets going. But there's this gorgeous circular melody that Gabor returns to that um, jumps out at you and gives the track this sort of focus. And then from that, I listen to the version on The Sorcerer, which is a little later, which is a live version. And it's um, got this lovely percussion backing to it. And, and obviously it's kind of raggery because that's what Gabor was um, experimenting with. But again, it's got this circular melody that he gets into even more and returns to and returns to and returns to. And then in the middle of it, he plays a blues progression that kind of comes out of nowhere and should sound really incongruous, but doesn't. And I think that's a tribute to Gabor's ability to improvise. And as you say, in a kind of laid back, effortless way, he can go to these places and, and just get into this groove and not, you never feel like Gabor's showing off or has anything to prove. It's creating a mood. And I can only assume that Mizrab was an important piece for Gabor that he wrote himself. It's got this Indian melodicism and, and mysticism to it. It's said to be Hungarian, but as you and I have had this conversation, several times, Mike, it's, it's difficult to know what Hungarian actually is. There's some percussion in the back of it that does give it a Central European sound, but I can't really hear anything in Gabor's, what Gabor's playing that sounds particularly Hungarian, although you could say the melody is slightly folkish. But it's Mizrab that I go back to again and again. And, and what, what's yours? There's so many that I love, but um, Divided City is one that I find that I return to a lot. Um, it's on the Bacchanal album, which was recorded in 1968 and released in 1968. And that is sort of, I think, the Gabor's best group, which was um, Gabor, obviously, on guitar, along with Jimmy Stewart on second guitar, Hal Gordon on percussion, Louis Kabak on bass, and Jim Keltner on drums. Just a fantastic group of musicians. And this whole album is just fantastic. Divided City is um, a song that Gabor composed himself. And obviously the title refers to his hometown of Budapest, which was literally, you know, a divided city, a city divided by uh, the Danube, Buddha on one side and Pest on the other. And um, this song just is just a great, you know, repeating riff. And it sort of, you know, it actually kind of rocks in a really subtle kind of a way. You know, uh, Jim Kelton is just such an amazing groove drummer on this. And the builds and things that he puts in there, it, it's just really like a great kinetic, you know, sound. And um, the other thing about it that I love is um, Gabor does a number of different things, but uh, you know he, he steps into his controlled melodic feedback, which he plays so beautifully. And then Jimmy Stewart, he always played just a classical acoustic guitar. Gabor's playing an amplified acoustic guitar. And Jimmy Stewart just plays off him so beautifully. And there's a, there's a bit towards the end where he, him and Gabor are just trading back and forth these little licks and these little tasty sort of classical flamenco runs that um, Jimmy puts in there. It's just wonderful. It just takes the song into a completely different place. And, and then, of course, they reel it back in and back to this theme with the swirling feedback. It really kind of you know, sums up everything I love about Gabor's music. And it's also more, probably more of a lively song than a lot of his more laid back material. This is, you know, like I said, it, it you know, you could actually probably dance to it. I've never tried, but I, th I think you probably could. I love that one. 
Yeah, it's interesting what you say about the kind of slightly soporific nature of a lot of his music, which is which is part of its appeal. I mean, Mizrab is mesmerizing in that way. So it's interesting to hear him with a bit of kick. Yeah, I think that's why he liked playing with uh, Keltner, and and that's what Keltner brought a lot of times. You know, Keltner being a young guy who played on you know rock and roll records. You know, he played on some of the most famous ones, but. Um, he just had a lot of life and he knew how to make it swing. And Gabor was trying to fuse together all these different things, these different elements, um, you know, Middle Eastern music, Indian, you know, straight ahead jazz stuff and exotic melodies from all over. And then, you know, this real swinging, almost rock and roll feel that sometimes Jim Keltner brings to some of these songs. And uh, yeah, yeah, Mizrab, you know, just going back to that for a moment, I mean, that seems to me to be one of his signature pieces um you know if we, we go through all the live recordings we have um it's invariably that's in the set and, and very often it just sort of begins with gabor just kind of it almost sounds like he's just noodling around looking for something and none of the other musicians are playing and he, he might do that for five minutes like he's just kind of searching for something and then he hits it. He hits the the melody of Mizrab, and and things start to move, you know. And and it really kind of unfurls in a really slow and subtle way. So, it almost seems like this song was some something that he needed to play to sort of get into a certain headspace. And and sometimes it took a little while to kind of click into the level where he wanted to be, sort of achieve, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, the correct altitude for for liftoff, as it were. <laughs> Yeah, I think you're right. That circular melody fulfills that function, doesn't it? Because, you know, he, he gets to that and stays there for different durations and always comes back to that as his ground, uh, as his bedrock. The idea, I mean, he recorded it at least three times and it was probably always a work in progress in his life. Yeah, he he you know, he talks in some of the interviews about uh, needing to enchant himself or to go in an almost trance-like state to play this kind of music. And I think that song was probably, you know, one of the keys to that, for him to get to that state that he needed to be in in order to, as he said, not actually think about what he was playing, but just kind of let the music flow through him. You know, and that's I think that's a really you know, enlightened place to be that, uh, you know, a lot of musicians are aiming for that, but very few of them reach it in a, you know, authentic, genuine way where they're just genuinely channeling this music from out of the ether. And it makes you wonder if, um, you know, because Jerry Garcia admired Gabor and the dead, you know, take hours to get to the state that Gabor can seem to get to in minutes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, he was he was pretty advanced. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about Gabor's journey. Um, you live in Budapest at least you know part of the time, and you've done a lot of research into Gabor's life there. So you know, what did you find out um, about him, about where he came from, his childhood, and how he first got into playing guitar and playing music? Well, he was. Uh, I believe he was born in Budapest. Uh, the family spent some time they when the war broke out or maybe towards the end of the, the second world war they trek to vienna where uh, gabor's brother john was was born uh, and then came back which must have been an extraordinarily traumatic experience for, for gabor john would have been too young to remember which i'm sure must have marked him in some way but he was as far as i i know he was educated well, certainly the earliest part of his education was in a small village called Soskut, which is just outside Budapest. And when the communists uh, in 48, when the communists took over Hungary, Gabor's family lost the uh, Palinka distillery. Palinka is the Hungarian spirit, kind of like a schnapps. And his father had a, a distillery and the communists confiscated either the distillery or the property or both. And the family moved to Budapest. And Gabor's father seems to have been a very inventive guy. And he, at various times, was a, a lamp maker. And he made lamps 
some of which ended up in the uh, National Opera House in Budapest. But he was also, according to John, he was also an accountant in a quarry. So the family, I think, was reasonably well off, which means that when Gabor saw a Roy Rogers movie in, I think, 1950 uh, or thereabouts, where Roy Rogers was playing the guitar. And um, I've always wondered how it was possible to do that, given that American cultural products, such as movies and uh, music, were so rigidly controlled and, and often banned by the the communists. So I don't quite understand how that happened yet. But he fell in love with the guitar, seeing Roy Rogers brandishing one. And he, I think, I mean, he, he said that it could have been anything. It could have been a saxophone. It was the impact on girls that he was most interested in. But I think that Gabor had a very dry sense of humor. So I, I can't really believe that was the case. But he got the guitar for his 14th birthday, or he, he fell in love with Roy Rogers when he was 14. So maybe he got the guitar his 15th birthday or at Christmas. And then it, he just became obsessed with it. He, he walked around with it. He slept with it. Like all great guitarists and great the idiosyncratic guitarists, he lived for the guitar from that moment on. And he became pretty well known reasonably early as a part of the what passed for the jazz scene in Budapest. And of course, we've got to remember the jazz was technically banned by the communists. And also prior to World War II, there hadn't been much of a jazz scene anyway. There was really a music scene where every everybody played a bit of everything, which may well have influenced Gabor's willingness to play rock and roll, to his openness to the Beatles, his openness to psychedelia his openness even to disco at the end, that, that he was just happy playing anything that had a good tune. So from the early 50s onwards, he was playing very regularly and was, was in great demand. And then the year of 1956, when the Hungarian uprising broke out in October 56, Gabor had already recorded over that summer and he was playing at the Astoria Hotel in downtown Budapest the night the uprising broke out at the radio, um, at National Hungarian Radio on a street called Brody Sandor, which was is about five minutes if you run from the Astoria. And um, Lou Kabok, who you mentioned before, who was playing with Gabor at that time, went down to the, the demonstration and got caught up in it. Gabor, it seems went in the opposite direction to the family apartment, which was about five minutes the other way towards the Danube if you ran, and um, I think laid low. But from then on, it was pretty much uh, predetermined that, that Gabor would leave. And Gabor had been dreaming of, of the US in any case and, and going to these clandestine listening sessions at the American embassy and devouring downbeat devouring albums that he got on the black market. Although again, unless Gabor's family was very, very rich, it's difficult to understand how Gabor amassed the collection of albums that he did because they were phenomenally expensive. They were the equivalent of a, of a month's salary, his brother John told me. So given that it's still slightly mysterious as to how Gabor earned a living apart from as a musician, it's difficult to understand how he amassed that many albums on the black market unless they were traded for something. Or yeah. um, one of the interesting things is that the uh, Russian, you know the, the, the Russian thing about recording onto x-rays? Yes, right. That happened in Hungary too. So yeah, they were able to make you know transcriptions onto x-ray film. Um, to make their own bootleg albums. Yeah, yeah, maybe Gabor had some of those albums, although everybody says that he had the originals and people used to come around to, to the family apartment and listen to them. So I'm not sure, but it's, it, it adds a lovely piece of color if he was listening to you know, his hero, Shorty Rogers, on, on albums cut into X-ray film. And Gab <laughs> yeah. Gabor escaped uh, in November 56 to Austria and then to the US. And some of the recordings he'd made were, were, were broadcast on The Voice of America, the jazz hour on um, 
he said he heard them on the night that he arrived in the the camp. He heard them in the camp, or maybe even the night he escaped. I'm not really sure, but he um, that may well have been apocryphal. But Gabor, um, that was Gabor's first, you know, outing on the radio, and. Um, he got to America, and as far as I understand it, from arriving in the transit camp in New Jersey, he went to San Bernardino with his family. And and you know more about the subsequent period, you know what followed on from that than I do, Mike. So, yeah, well, you know, the, I could talk a little bit about that. Um, you know, obviously, when the revolution uh, went down and and the, the Russians started to crush it, you know, very brutally. You know, tens of thousands, um, maybe it was a hundred thousand uh, Hungarians left the country, fled the country while the borders were still relatively easy to cross. And uh, Gabor was among them, and as was Lou Kabak, um, you know, the the bass player who he had played with at the Astoria that night and and many other occasions. And of course, many of the refugees were welcomed into the United States because, of course, that was a great you know, piece of propaganda against the uh, communist way of life to accept these people fleeing um, communism. And as it happened, Lou and Gabor both ended up, you know, after having no contact after that night of the Astoria, they both ended up in San Bernardino, which was kind of an incredible coincidence. Um, That was kind of one of the magnets for uh, refugees. There was um, some kind of Catholic organization based there that that welcomed them. So that's that's one of the reasons they ended up there. And uh, in San Bernardino, they started playing together, playing music in a little group called the Three Strings, along with another Hungarian musician who also uh, arrived at the same time as them. And they even did like a TV talent show in, uh, in Los Angeles called Rocket to Stardom. Uh, it would be great if that footage uh, ever surfaced. So yeah, they they had uh, arrived in in you know what they had seen as sort of the promised land, California. They were you know fans of the West Coast jazz and all those musicians, and uh, now they wanted to be a part of that. And and Gabor talked about believing that Shorty Rogers would be his milkman. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he thought those people would be everywhere, or or, or everybody around him would be somehow you know a, a jazz musician. Of course. Uh, you know, he had to come down to earth pretty soon after that to uh, <laughs> realize that's not the way the world works. But then, not too um, too long afterwards, he was accepted to Berkeley, fifty eight, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, the Berkeley School of Music in Boston. And he was. People we've talked to have said that Gabor was absolutely, by far and away, one of the standout uh, students at the school. He was one of the real stars. Yeah, I mean, obviously he had incredible natural talent, and um, you know he went to Berkeley to you know l- learn more skills and, and refine that talent, and uh, obviously that must have been a huge um, stepping stone for him. And it was. It turned out that that's where he met um, Gary McFarland, for example, who also attended at the same time, and you know had a huge impact on um, Gabor's future. Um, what do you think stylistically, Gary McFarland? Gave to Gabor. Yeah, Gary McFarland is an interesting guy, um, primarily um, a vibes player, and uh, he had a real pop sensibility. Melody was his primary love, I think, and uh, he wanted to really bring a, a smoother, melodic edge to jazz. He wasn't in a bebop. He was more, he was picking up very early on on what was happening in pop music with things like Burt Bacharach and the Beatles and things like that. And Gary wanted to incorporate that music into a jazz approach. And I think uh, Gabor shared that love of melody. And and I think that's why they bonded. They didn't want to be, you know, playing a million notes per second and trying to play, you know, bebop or free jazz or anything like that. They were really honed in on melody. And then bringing jazz into the present day, because jazz could, you know, there was, Part of it was very antiquated in a way because uh, they were still stuck playing the same standards. And uh, because of jazz's rich history, it can tend to uh, sort of tread water and, you know, rest on its laurels. And uh, 
Gary and Gabor, I think, saw a way to move it forward into the 60s. And, um, and they were, were coming of age at a time when jazz was going through enormous changes uh, anyway, weren't they? Economically and artistically. Yeah. You know, in the, in the 40s and 50s, jazz was huge and, uh, you know, the big band era and then even bebop times, you know, they were filling big venues, big clubs, and it was the most popular kind of music in America. But by the 60s, things had changed. They weren't selling out concert halls anymore. And um, a, a lot of uh, younger musicians were coming up and they were trying to come up with something new, a new sound. And so we have people like Miles Davis and John Coltrane and um, Thelonious Monk and Free Jazz were starting to come in, trying to take music in a new direction that was not necessarily about filling ballrooms with dancing people, but doing something a little more cerebral, something more um, avant-garde. And Gary and Gabor were not really of that way of thinking. They were kind of on another wing of, of jazz, which was wanting to incorporate modern pop melodies into a jazz sensibility, I think. But he was always experimenting. You know, he experimented with something he called chamber jazz, where he had a cello player. He was, uh, you know, quite a remarkable guy you know he was just moving with the times and I think uh, he saw something in Gabor that he could use for his band so it, you know actually Chico was the first even though uh, he'd met Gary uh, Chico Hamilton was really the first person that Gabor you know hitched his uh, star to and uh, really uh, with Chico is where he made his rise through the jazz scene and that's where he was really schooled in in the culture of jazz really wasn't it as well not not the academic culture in the sense of berkeley but life on the road endless gigging you know the life of a jazz guy right meeting and playing with different musicians and really learning a lot i think during this period where he got out of berkeley at the beginning of the 60s and uh, started playing with chico's band in uh, 61 i think it was and uh he was dismissed from chico's band after a little while and uh Charles Lloyd was also in Chico's band, and he kind of petitioned to get Gabor back. He and Gabor were kind of like the young guns. You know, Chico was already quite old, much older than them. I think he was maybe in his 40s already. And, uh, you know, Charles and, and Gabor were both younger guys, and uh, I think uh, they were kind of kindred spirits, at least during this period. And there was, um, although he was with Chico, I think, for quite a long period of time, wasn't he originally kicked out of Chico's band because he, he sounded too derivative. He didn't have his own sound yet. Yeah, I think that was the reason given. I think uh, Gabor was not sure, you know, how, how far he could go with his band. He was probably still being a polite sideman. And I think Chico wanted more than that from Gabor. Gradually, uh, you, know, he got, you know, Charles got him back in the band and, and Gabor started to shine more and more. And you can hear that on those uh, albums they made for Impulse with each successive one, Gabor is uh, stepping more and more into the, into the forefront. Um, yeah, I think the turning point was when uh, the composition Lady Gabor, which I think was improvised in the studio, but that was really a showcase for Gabor's developing style. And uh, that really you know, started creating the blueprint for what would follow. And yeah, you've told me that uh, your theory that Gabor's style was very much influenced by the dynamics of Chico's band, the kind of, uh, some of the more innovative aspects of, of what Gabor was getting up to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Gabor told Lou Kabak that, you know, part of the reason that he started changing his style was because uh, he was getting frustrated in that band. Um, Maybe he was trying to get a little space for his himself in there, so he started to hit the strings much harder. You know, he he started to uh, I think probably add some reverb to uh, his amplifier so that it would cut through, and he would let the notes ring out and drone, and that way he kind of hit upon a new sound and uh, started to stake out a little turf for himself in the band because you know he was in the band with Charles Lloyd, who was really dominating that band. You know, he was the main composer in the band and he was playing sax and flute and he was all over the place. So I think Gabor needed to get a little room for himself in there. 
And also, I think Charles was inspiring Gabor to, you know, really elevate his playing to become, you know, guitars in jazz groups were often just sort of almost like percussion instruments, really. It would be a very muted sound, a guy sitting on a chair, just kind of playing chords in a real nice tone, uh, just filling in between the piano and the bass or whatever. But Gabor played more like a solo instrument or like uh, Bill Evans played his piano, you know, that very different choices with the notes and the chords to really stand out. And uh, that's why uh, I think he got voted best up-and-coming guitar player in a downbeat poll in 1964, which was a huge deal at the time because... Uh, Nobody really knew who he was until then, and then all of a sudden, he's a rising star. Maybe that kind of aligned him with the rock and roll guys more, that, that he was more of a young Turk. And he also, perhaps, he wasn't invested in the whole kind of political uh, civil rights aspect of free jazz. You know, he, he was more interested in, in the music, and, and he wasn't a political person either. And I guess maybe that sort of set him up to be simpatico with the, you know, the, the musicians making the music, the psychedelic music of the mid-60s and the rock and roll of the mid-60s, whether it be the Beatles or Jefferson Airplane or The Doors or The Birds or Love or whoever, that they were, A, not massively different in age, but B, like-minded in the sense that they were interested primarily in the music. Yeah, I think that's it. And, and, you know, just also the fact that he played an amplified guitar. You know, this was, the 60s was where it was all about guitars. You know, whether it was the Beatles or whether it was Jimi Hendrix, guitars were kind of the symbol of what was happening in music. It was all happening on guitars. And, um, you know, horns were not so prevalent anymore. You know, the coolest thing was not necessarily, you know, saxophones. That wasn't a part of the rock scene at all. So, yeah, Gabor was able to align himself with the rock scene, especially like the psychedelic scene as that began to emerge because he had been starting to experiment with uh, raga and uh, drone and, and uh, feedback, you know, going back to 66. So he was right. He came, kind of arrived at that the same time as psychedelia was starting to bloom. He was kind of experimenting in, in similar zones, having arrived at it in a completely different way. And he'd been picking up on Raga and Drone from pretty much the early 60s, hadn't he? Way before the Beatles and, you know, its, it's introduction to rock and roll. Gabor was very familiar with, with Indian music. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think he said that it was 61 where he first uh, started listening to it. And um, that was when Ravi Shankar's albums were being released by uh, World Pacific. And, um, and also, you know, Coltrane was experimenting with Indian music and some of the other jazz musicians, Dave Brubeck, and were experimenting with uh, different ethnic music and especially Indian music. So, yeah, he picked up on it real early on. And, um, of course, you know, uh, coming from Hungary and uh, the gypsy culture there, a lot of that has roots in Indian music um, as well. And, and there's also the flamenco and... and uh, music which was also an influence on Gabor that comes from the Moors and all those things kind of linked together. Yeah, which was, um, as far as I understand it, the gypsies traveled up from India through Africa, through the Middle East, through Morocco, into Spain, and obviously across Europe to Hungary and to other parts of the, the, the Eastern, um, Eastern Europe. And it's one of those really fascinating things that you do hear folk music uh, in Hungary, gypsy music that's very, very similar to flamenco. But the music that American critics particularly identify as being Hungarian in Gabor's music or, or gypsy in Gabor's music, Gabor was very interested. And there's Gypsy 66 and so on. He was obviously very interested in, in gypsy music, but you have to be careful as to what is being described as gypsy music. Because gypsy, when Gabor was coming up in Hungary in the late 40s, really referred to pop. And, and it wasn't a particularly 
august music. It wasn't. It was extremely popular, but it wasn't particularly respected. But I think it's fair to say there's something in Gabor's compositions and in his tone that is not quite Indian and is not quite raga, and maybe reflects an interest in in Hungarian gypsy culture. Because if you can imagine growing up in Hungary, the gypsies you would have seen would have been um, very very dark, and also gypsy culture in Hungary is akin to. In one sense, black culture in America. You know, the gypsies are marginalized, are treated very, to this day, treated very, very badly. There's an enormous amount of racism, and yet so many of the great Hungarian entertainers are gypsy. And so Gabor, I'm sure, must have been very, very well aware of that and must have been intrigued because he was such a intrepid musical explorer. Must have been interested in in the real gypsy music, which is the music that's played in the villages of Hungary, and is often um, doesn't involve instruments and is vocal, and is very different. So I think there are two things that you can have this notion of Gabor being very interested in raga, in, in in modal music, in flamenco, perhaps because of the gypsy diaspora, but also that. This space, this otherness that we always talk about, is not necessarily gypsy. It's down to Gabor's searching, as a man and as an artist, as a as an absolute pure artist, as much as anything else. So, that's one of the things I think that we both agree that's really fascinating about our book. Yeah, is trying to understand what what Gabor's otherness really, really was. We'll be right back. You know, the, the thing that we're both utterly fascinated by, and I think other Gabor obsessives are fascinated by, is what makes Gabor so different? And why has he been written out of jazz history to the extent that he has when he was groundbreaking? But then I suppose that begs the question, do you think Gabor was a pioneer? I think he was, yeah, absolutely, um, because he was utterly unique, and he definitely had an influence on people. But um, maybe his influence was, you know, at the time, he influenced you know rock musicians like Carlos Santana and uh, you know Johnny Eccles of Love and, and people like that. And then later on, his records were you know picked up by uh, hip hop artists, you know, looking for samples, and they would sample Gabor's work. So his influence, you know, was maybe on a slow fuse, or was not noticed in the jazz world because he kind of separated himself from the jazz world. There's an interview that he did at the end of 1967 where he, one of the things he said in it was, jazz is dead. And uh, I think it was a little bit of an off-the-cuff sentence, you know, as part of a larger explanation that, that jazz had to move forward. Jazz had to look to people like the Beatles and uh, other pop artists and, uh, you know, explore their material and their approaches and add that to their palette of uh, influences. But of course, Jazz is Dead was the uh, soundbite that came out of that. And it was uh, syndicated in newspapers across the country. You know, Jazz is Dead says, you know, Gabo <laughs> Zabo. Uh, freedom fight. <laughs> yeah, Hungarian freedom fight. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, uh, and that caused a little bit of an uproar in the jazz scene because, uh, well, you know, working jazz musicians don't like to be, <laughs> don't like it to be said that their form of music is dead and, and it's all over, and which is not what Gabor meant. But I think that really set him apart. He didn't want to really identify as a jazz musician anymore necessarily you know he wanted to become something else so to him jazz was dead but i think that's maybe why uh in the jazz history documentaries and the jazz history books gabor is often not even mentioned at all and which is unfair because he sold a lot of records he was very popular 
and he was a very unique and groundbreaking musician, and uh, you know, one of the best. Um, but we're, we're going to keep digging and find why has Gabor been written out of history, and we're going to write him back into history, hopefully, with this book. Uh, absolutely right, and as we've both said, and you know, Doug Payne, who's a real Gabor scholar, who's helping us, has agreed. You you kind of get very protective about Gabor. I, I don't know why, but once you discover Gabor, once you fall in love with his music, once you learn a bit, little bit about his story, you you feel the need to defend Gabor, which is kind of intriguing. And it's the fact, I think, also that that you know Gabor really hit the heights around the time of CTI coming to prominence and Creed Taylor and Bob Teal and Rudy Van Gelder, and the beginning of smooth jazz which was by definition smooth, but kind of modal and, and sounds on the face of it, not exception, exceptionally threatening, is more groove driven and so on. And and there seems to be to this day a massive disdain for smooth jazz. And the, the notion that, you know, Miles's fusion of the late 60s is somehow profoundly more authentic than anything people, Gabor and people like him were doing. But but you have a great story that, that about um, Gabor and Miles, right? Playing on the same bill? Yeah. Um, Lou Kabok told me about this. This was in uh, 1967, and uh, they played at the uh, Village Gate in New York. Of course, Gabor's band was opening for Miles Davis, but um, they were getting a better reception. They played, I think, three nights uh, or four nights. They get, But uh, Gabor was getting a better reception than Miles from this primarily younger audience. And... Um, it was probably because Gabor was, you know, no horns, guitar to the forefront. He was using feedback and raga, and it was really just resonated with the younger crowd. And uh, Lou said that uh, after the first show, he saw Miles, you know, took Gabor aside and they had a really heavy conversation. He don't know, doesn't know what they talked about, but he noted that, you know, less than six months later, um, Miles got George Benson to play guitar on uh, one of his albums, and that was the first time he'd really had guitar in the band. So, I think that kind of that was the beginning of opening Miles to uh, the possibility of using guitar and kind of incorporating rock elements. Now we all know that you know that kind of reached critical mass when Miles saw Sly and the Family Stone and and basically reinvented himself overnight because he was so blown away by that. But I think those seeds had already been planted when he saw Gabor, and especially when he saw the reaction that Gabor was getting. So one of the things that, that really absolutely, well, I, I think it blew me away when I actually found out from you, Mike, uh, that, that Gabor lived for a time on the same street as Elizabeth Taylor. He was part of Los Angeles' um, not necessarily musical aristocracy, but certainly well and truly entrenched in the scene. And he had a degree of visibility accompanying Lena Horne on TV. He had a surprisingly high profile, well, certainly surprising to me. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing about Gabor, as you dig deeper, you discover that he was kind of influential among other musicians, and something that really didn't show up so much in the media or necessarily reflected in uh, how he's been covered in, in history books. Um, he was just incredibly well respected by other musicians. Lena Horne is a, is a great example. Um, she um, loved playing with Gabor. They originally met because Gabor was part of Chico Hamilton's band and, and they backed up Lena Horne for many shows and she just loved what Gabor did on guitar and she would hire him on many occasions throughout the 60s and into the 70s you know he played in Las Vegas uh, you know big runs of shows with uh, Lena Horne and he did several TV dates and of course um, in 69 they made an album together called Lena and Gabor Yesterday, when I was young, which was kind of her taking a more contemporary direction, doing some Beatles numbers and things like that. So that, that was an important relationship, and uh, clearly she heard something in him that was very special. And um, she took that band with her over to London in uh, 1964, and uh, while they were there, they recorded the soundtrack to Roman Polanski's film Repulsion, 
that's something that's not not very noted in the history books, but uh, that's a, you know a groundbreaking movie, a very um, popular cult movie, and that was Gabor and Chico and Albert Stinson doing the music. So I don't really know for sure how much interaction there was between uh, Polanski and Gabor, but um, I talked to uh, Suzanne Crosby, who is the widow of Norman Schwartz, who was Gabor's personal manager for many, many, many years, and also uh, was the head of Sky Records, which was uh, you know, the label that Gabor was a part owner of. And Suzanne said that uh, they definitely uh, knew each other. And, uh, you know, she said they were very similar in that sort of East European kind of uh, way they spoke and interacted with people. And also they, they sort of had, looked a little similar. To her, they, they were a little bit interchangeable, really. Um, and uh, I know Jimmy Stewart also said that, um, that Gabor and Polanski were friends. So um, I need to find out, you know, how deep that relationship went. I imagine, you know, they might have related to each other because... Uh, you know, they came from Eastern Europe and uh, fled oppression. You know, of course, Polanski's story is even more scary and uh, harsh, you know, because he was fleeing the, the Nazis out of Poland, you know, and um, yeah, his story is really grueling. But they must have related on on some level, I would think. And th there's no reason why they wouldn't have been good friends. They were certainly would have been part of that uh, Hollywood crowd there of East Europeans. Uh, I know that Gabor, according to his brother John, wasn't enormously interested in being Hungarian. You know, he, he didn't sort of carry an ostensible flame for Hungary wherever he went. But then I know that Hungarians who, who leave Hungary very much want to come back. You know, it's always with them. And of course, Gabor did come back, which we'll get to later. Of course, he was always very closely connected to his mother and father. And you can imagine, we, we know that Gabor really loved to eat. So, we can imagine that Gabor's mother would have made, you know, traditional Hungarian favorites for him from time to time, I would think, you know. Uh, so it's that that, I, that that really, really intrigues me. And, and of course, you're in a great position to find that stuff out because of your proximity to Los Angeles. And then whether there is anything in the sort of seamy side of Polanski that, that might have related to Gabor, if, as I say, there really was a seamy side. Yeah, he doesn't seem to be a guy that was at a lot of, you know, Hollywood parties, but he was right in the thick of that Hollywood community. And of course, uh, you know, in 60, early 69, he, you know, bought a house in the Hollywood Hills and his neighbor was Elizabeth Taylor. So uh, he was he was right in the neighborhood of all of that uh, Hollywood glamour and, uh, and I guess, seediness too. And he... Um Around that time, well, maybe more, maybe considerably earlier, he'd met Craig Smith, hadn't he, who, who you've written about, and he'd become part of, well, I don't know if you could call it a set of Hollywood musicians, but he was associating with a lot of really fascinating, really excellent musicians. And of course, the Jim Keltner connection, because was Jim playing rock and roll at that time too, or did that come later? Well, uh, Jim started out playing rock and roll, and, and then he played jazz. But prior to uh, joining Gabor's group, his previous gig had been with Gary Lewis and the Playboys, which, of course, was a total pop rock band led by Jerry Lewis's son, Gary Lewis. And they had some big hits like this Diamond Ring, Everybody Loves a Clown. And so <laughs> from going from that to, uh, you know, Gabor Zabo, that's a... Uh, quite a stretch, but it seems when you talk to these musicians, uh, those worlds were overlapping in a lot of ways. And, and um, you know, rock music and pop music was really coming to the forefront in the 60s and really eclipsing the popularity of jazz. And there was a great sort of cross-pollination between those two worlds, which is one of the, I think, big elements of this story of Gabor. And, um, you know, in digging into this, there's a, you know, very... Um, that you can illustrate this with a sort of a geographic way almost. Um, Shelley's Manhole was one of the top jazz clubs in Los Angeles. It was just a small kind of hole-in-the-wall place. I think less than 200 people could fit in it. It was in Hollywood on North Cahuenga, right off of Hollywood Boulevard, between Hollywood and Sunset. And, uh, you know, Miles Davis played there, John Coltrane, Art Blakey, Paul Horn, you know, um, you name it. Of course, Shelley Mann all the time. 
But if you went out the back door of Shelley's into the alley there, the next street over was called Cosmo Alley. And on that street was the entrance to a club called Beat Olitos, which is um, really kind of a legendary Hollywood rock club. And this is where love got their start. So the musicians um, that were playing at Shelley's would, you know, go out the back door, you know, to hang out in the alley and smoke a joint and chat amongst themselves. And they, you know, would obviously see all of these people in Cosmo Alley just across the way there, crowds and crowds of people. And in fact, Love got so popular that the crowd couldn't fit inside the club. So they put a second PA speakers outside, closed off the alley at both ends and charged admission just to get into the alley, just to get into Cosmo Alley and hear love, but not actually see them. And uh, I talked to uh, Johnny Eccles from the band and and, um, they were big jazz fans, him and Arthur Lee. Uh, In fact, uh, Chico Hamilton's son went to their high school and uh, Charles Lloyd was uh, teaching uh, their school band. So they were kind of already part of that world but love would play like four sets a night from eight o'clock till two in the morning and uh between sets they would walk across the alley in through the kitchen of shelley's manhole and inside the club where they could see gabor play or see miles play and uh the people at uh, shelley's kind of let them in even though they were just teenagers and strange looking um they kind of you know made them feel at home the waitresses all knew them and they would go in and out of there all night long. And by the same token, people like Gabor and Miles Davis would walk across the alley to uh, Beat Olitos to see why are all these people coming to see this band, you know, where there's only 200 people at uh, Shelley's, but there's, you know, 500 people between inside the club and in the alley. There's 500 people to see this rock and roll band. You know, what is this all about? And uh, they they gained an appreciation, I think, of, uh, of the music that was going on. I mean, they couldn't help but be impressed. And likewise, the guys from Love, and they weren't the only band, um, John Densmore of The Doors talks about going to see Coltrane at Shelley's and then when Coltrane's set finished, he just walked, you know, a block over to Beat Olitos and went to see Love. And that was happening all the time, this sort of cross-pollination back and forth between these two clubs. And uh, Johnny had a very great uh, um, description of when, you know, he would be walking, uh, you know, he'd walk outside of Beat Olitos. He'd know whenever Gabor was playing because the sound of Gabor's guitar, he used to play pretty loud with a lot of reverb and it was really bright. And he could hear it right away as soon as he stepped out of Beat Olitos. And he would, you know, he said, you know, he, his pace would quicken because like, shit, Gabor's playing, you know, and they would go across and go catch a, a Gabor set in between their own sets. So um, that definitely had a very big influence on on Love, whose music took a real jazzy turn with the De Capo album, their second album. On the one hand, the rock musicians were influencing the jazz guys to try new directions. And then the jazz guys were influencing these young rock musicians. I mean, we all know, of course, about the birds with Eight Miles High. And um, David Crosby was a huge Gabor fan. And we know about the Doors, lots of uh, you know jazz influence in their playing, especially John Densmore. And um, also uh, Lee Underwood, who backed um, Tim Buckley. Yeah. And and then you've also got, you know, we've touched on Santana before, but there's a great quote from Santana, and I know he saw, he didn't see Gabor in LA, he saw Gabor in San Francisco. But part of what he talked about with Gabor, and I think you could extrapolate this into the other guitarists that, that you've talked about, was that when they were, you know, learning their craft, the master for a lot of them was B.B. King. But when you got to the end of B.B. King, where did you go? And where you went was Gabor. Yeah, yeah, and there's that great shit that 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 Luca Box story about his response to seeing Hendrix. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the Luca Bach. Uh, yeah, he he'd never seen a, a, a rock and roll show before, and uh, he was curious um, about Jimi Hendrix. So he, you know, the, he said it was really jam packed, and he sort of had to elbow his way to a spot, um, you know, right on the side of the stage uh, you know the front side near the giant pa stacks and uh when hendrix started playing he he was just he couldn't understand the volume of it it was just so 
oppressive to him, so so painful that he couldn't really get out of there fast enough. He just couldn't handle it at all. And, uh, you know, he, he had experienced uh, the Russian tanks, you know, firing shells in the streets of Budapest in 56 right next to him. And he said this, uh, you know, this was comparable to that. <laughs> Shall we move on to the 70s, where Gabor's career took a kind of different direction? I, I think it's reasonably safe to say. And would you say that after that extraordinary run of 60s albums, and, and really in 69, I think Gabor professionally, obviously he had his debilitating drug habit, but he was a co-owner of Sky Records. He, uh, you know, he had the house in Hollywood. He was still... Uh, drawing big crowds and and having you know decent attendances and touring, you know doing well when he was touring. But he seemed to kind of um, take his eye off the ball a bit. Uh, do, do you think that's a reasonable analysis of what started to happen in the early seventies with Gabor? Yeah, I, th I think so. I think, I think that's accurate. He was always searching for a sound, and often he felt, just felt the need to shake it up and change it. And uh, he wanted to move away from jazz to some extent and make his own music. And in 69, he sort of disbanded the classic quintet that he had. Um, well, they, they sort of gradually sort of peeled away from him, actually, for various reasons. You know, it was not always easy to play in Gabor's band. Um, and I think he decided to have a new instrumental lineup. Um, he wanted to have electric bass. And also he added uh, electric piano. Previously, he'd been the only electric instrument, you know, and even that was an acoustic guitar with a pickup on it. But now he's adding electric bass with uh, Wolfgang Meltz, who he worked with for most of the 70s, and um, an electric piano player, and moving into a slightly sort of funkier sound. And, and you know, I think in, in some ways more commercial, really. He was really reaching to cross over into that rock audience, but maybe he was trying too hard, you know, maybe... I don't think he was as comfortable with that as after playing all those years with acoustic bass, no piano, no horns, um, you know, and we're seeing this on albums like Magical Connection, you know. I, for me, it's a good album, but he's lost something uh, there. I was listening to the 70s albums today, and he sounds out of time to me, not, not musically out of time, but the tone of his guitar and his playing, when you think about how slick, you know, jazz started to become in the early 70s, and you had crossovers of jazz funk and jazz rock and jazz fusion and so on, Gabor's tone in the middle of what became a progressively more funky or funkier sound always sounds um, like it just slightly doesn't belong. It, it, it's wonderful. And it gives it, um, gives these albums like Rambler on CTI or Macho, and also very much for me, uh, Night Flight and Faces, which were the disco, more disco-y albums, which I know yeah. you're not enormously keen on, but I am. Uh, and, you know, Night Flight was recorded at Sigma Sound in Philadelphia, where Bowie did Young Americans. And it uh, gave birth to Keep Smiling, which was uh, the biggest... I think the biggest hit of Gabor's career. It sounds okay in that, that disco-y light funk setting, but it's not, I have to say, it, it's not really truly 100% engaged for me and that might be because you know as you say maybe he's trying too hard uh, maybe he he's more comfortable in a warmer acoustic setting maybe he's lost his way all of these different maybes it's still great music um, but I think his he doesn't quite fit but then there, there's the terrific album the Charles Lloyd album isn't there that the track Mallorca is on Oh yeah, um, which 
that's early 70s, I believe, uh, Waves. Yeah, Waves, yes. I think it's from 72. Um, yeah, and, and that was done with members of the Beach Boys as well. And um, that wasn't, Robbie Robertson was on an earlier one, wasn't he? Yeah, he's on one of the Charles Lloyd, uh, of course, of course. But uh, Jim McGuinn, Roger McGuinn plays guitar on Waves. So, yeah, that's an interesting album. But, yeah, Gabor is kind of a guest on that. And I, I really like that one. And But going back to, you know, Night Flight and Macho and some of those albums, I do, I do, I've actually kind of grown to appreciate those albums. Um, they, they have this sort of smooth disco, light funk kind of feel and the strings and everything. Um and you're right, though. Gabor, he's he's being Gabor. Uh, the way he plays is how Gabor always plays, but it's just in this almost incongruous setting. And I feel like during that time, Gabor wasn't necessarily searching for that new sound anymore, but he was kind of going along with the vision of the different producers and things. Like, you know, Bunny Siegler did the Night Flight album, you know, the big, you know, Philly Soul producer. I think he was sort of... You know, if he could get a record deal and they would suggest something like that, he'd be like, okay, you know, I can do it. It's good music. Um, I can make my style fit that. And that's what he does. But I don't feel with, with the, you know, with Macho and Knife Flight that, that any of that vision was, was Gabor's at all. Whereas with the, the run of 60s albums, it was very much Gabor's vision. And he yeah. was very much the band leader. Um, although you've got the Swedish albums in the middle of um, Belster River and whatever the other one's called, in the middle of the small, 70s. yeah, small world, yeah, Th those I think Gabor was being Gabor. You know, he was being recorded with with other musicians, and he put something together. It wasn't a producer's imposing a sound on him necessarily. And he was back with Peter Toth, who he was playing with that fateful night in the Astoria in October twenty three fifty six, and so. He was playing with somebody he'd known by that time for almost 30 years. Yeah. So that, that may well have had an influence. And he was very impressive. The guy who I interviewed, who uh, you know played on that album, was the Swedish guitarist who played with ABBA, of all people, <laughs> uh, Jana Schaefer, was really impressed with uh, Gabor, as was the, the record label owner and producer, Lars Samuelsson. So and there's something more focused and more forceful about Gabor on those those Swedish albums, I think. Yeah, I think that was a, that was a creative period for him, and he was maybe find, trying to find a, a, a new, more contemporary sound that was his own vision. Yeah, you know, we we've discussed this many times. You know, what would he be doing today if he had not passed away at the age of forty-two? I, and I think that he would have. Uh, he he would have made a big comeback, I think. You know, he would have lived long enough for people to have appreciated him for the innovator that he was, and he would probably still be playing today on bigger big concert stages. You know. Yeah, and I think his legacy. One of the things that, looking back, because obviously eighty two is forty years ago, but that was the beginning of the rare groove uh, jazz funk scene, certainly in the UK. And and people were discovering the Boar tracks then, you know, and then I, it was the beginning also of the revival of interest and deep interest in psychedelia, wasn't it? You can date that to the late 70s, early 80s. So there were probably people discovering Gabor's albums from various stages throughout his career. And, you know, if you think that Bob James had a fantastic new lease of life from his tracks like Westchester, Lady and Nautilus, being played in the London rare groove jazz funk scene in the late 70s. Well, Gabor played with Bob James. You know, he was on CTI. He was perfectly positioned if he hadn't become a massive star all over again, which, as you say, it's highly likely that he would have done, of, of being a highly respected cult figure that, that you would have seen playing, you know, in, in places like the Jazz Cafe in London, Ronnie Scott's, the American equivalents. You know, you can see him as somebody who would have, have toured steadily, whose style would have been very much in vogue. The Ugly Things podcast was produced by James Archer and narrated by Mike Stacks. That's me. 
You can order the latest issue of Ugly Things magazine. That's issue number 61 at uglythings.com. That's ugly-things.com, where you can also order back issues, vinyl, CDs, and books, and read additional articles and reviews. Please subscribe to the podcast, leave a review, and tell your friends. We would also deeply appreciate it if you became a Patreon supporter. For a small monthly donation, Patreon members get exclusive access to all kinds of interesting bonus content. Your contribution will help us keep bringing you the very best in 1960s beat, garage, and psychedelic music. I'd like to send out a personal thank you to our top Patreon supporters. Michael Barbera, Chip Lyon, Rob Brannigan, Ray Brandis, and Phil Payne. Thank you, all of you, for your support. This is the final episode of Season 1, but we'll be back with Season 2 in the new year, so be ready for that. And thank you for listening. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.